0: It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered
0: your purchases made through our links, give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: We are highlighting adaptations from season nine over at our originals page, thenextreelcom slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions.
0: We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood.
1: Robin and Marian was specifically based on the ballad, The
0: Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods.
1: We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel,
0: Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman.
1: The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical.
0: Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir.
1: And we looked at a trio of John le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy.
0: Plus, all three movies in our Agneska Holland series were based on books Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore.
1: La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's
0: original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series.
1: All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash Originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast.
0: Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash Originals. I wish I knew, I wish I knew uh, I'm Pete Wright
1: And I'm Andy Nolan.
0: Welcome to the next reel when the movie ends Our conversation begins Harold and Maud is over The earth is our body Our head is in the stars
1: Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves You can't let the world judge you too much
0: And if you want to be me, be me and if you want Harold and Maude, to let me, can we start? I want to start with one thing before we talk about the thing. That trailer was straight up terrible. Yes, it was. The reason I bring it up, and you didn't respond negatively enough, quickly enough, but let me tell you, it was terrible. You know it. I know it. It's it's not just, a secret. And I w- <laughs> we're going to use this to call back to later in the show. We're going to have the ability to have a little callback because this trailer may have something to do with the uh, future point. Well,
1: my I always question when I watch tra- old trailers. <laughs> this is this is my reaction because when you look at old trailers on YouTube, it's sometimes hard to determine if it's a trailer or if it's yeah. just a clip reel or or what it is because people are very uh, I shouldn't say often or always, but there are times where people are inept at labeling things properly on YouTube. It what has happened. What are you talking
0: about, Andy? This says Harold <laughs> and Maude, nineteen seventy-one trailer. It says it. Yep. I know. You're I telling know. me that I'm not to believe what's in it's in video. <laughs> I have to believe it. Right? You Do oh,
1: Andy it's out there? Uh, this, but but what we have, what we did watch, was not good.
0: No, it was not good. It was it was not not good at all. Uh, It's in the show notes. If you want to watch the unverified but possibly official 1971 trailer for this movie, it's in the show notes. We are doing a Colin Higgins series, and this is the first movie. And how did this come about again? Colin Higgins
1: is just uh, he is a writer director who I think is somebody that you don't hear brought up. Very often, he didn't have a very big career because his life was cut short due to an HIV-related illness, which is uh, tragic. He he worked from the early 70s uh, with this to the late 80s. And, uh, you know, I think he brought a lot of really uh, clever uh, comedy to the world of uh, film. He was... Uh, Tackled issues about gender, nonconformity, social alienation, and uh, I think is uh, he certainly is a, a filmmaker, a writer, director who's inspired a lot of people. I mean, people who have said they have been inspired by him include Judd Apatow, Seth Rogen, Wes Anderson, Paul Feig. It's you know he is a very clever storyteller when he's putting together characters in a way that blends comedy and drama and feels very real and so that's i think what drew us to talk about colin higgins and look at these uh five films that we're going to be discussing and so uh yeah that's I, i think you know we want more people to kind of look at what his work is and uh check out his
0: career well and certainly to revisit these these old films if you if you haven't seen Harold and Maude if you haven't seen films like nine to five it's been a long time since nine to five that seems still very very present to me but I realize as I start talking about this series a lot of people don't know it haven't heard of it aren't aware that it exists yeah. and that I think is deeply unfortunate it's a, he's a guy who uh, tackles these uh, really human issues in some very funny, odd, uh, awkward, kind of surreal ways. And uh, I I really adore uh, his approach. In this movie, um, you know, he takes on certainly relationships, human relationships, ageism, uh, military, uh, the you know, the war machine, um, uh, wealth, absolute classism. I mean, there's so many things buried in this movie, and yet it's still it is a uh, it's a quiet film. It's a quiet film that is it's it, it's quiet enough that I can absolutely hear my own laughter over it. It, it is a, a fantastic experience for me. I, I really, really enjoy this movie.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's it's a great one. And it's it's a perfect one to I mean it's you know his first film that he was involved in so it's a great starting place to look at Colin Higgins' work. But I think just you know right out of the gate we we get to talk about such a great film as part of the series. So yeah. that's
0: that's thrilling. So we, we have the list of the big questions, Andy. Where uh, How would you like to start a discussion of quirky films? Is there Do we have a rating system that we're going to invent? Because I think you know that's pretty exciting.
1: That's a great question. What does it take to make a quirky film? This is certainly a quirky film, and certainly I think that is one of the reasons it had a hard time finding its audience at the time. It's a story about a you know a very two nonconformist characters who are different in their nonconformities and end up clicking with one another. And one happens to be eighteen, the other happens to be seventy nine, and they uh, kind of fall in love and have a fast friendship and a loving relationship. And it's it's I think it's something that people might have some issues with, but. I don't know. I feel that there's a lot of honesty in the relationships um, despite that. And so it's it's tricky. I, I, I don't think it's as quirky as some films, um, but I can certainly see coming out of the 60s why some audiences say, oh, this is just a bunch of hippie nonsense and wouldn't want to go see it. That being said, I can also see why there was a contingent of people who found it and it became a cult film because of those very things.
0: Do you think the film had a problem finding its initial audience because so many of the characters are so quirky, to use your word? Like we have we have no audience surrogate that we can relate to in this movie.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a hard... Harold is a tricky character to get, uh, you know, connect with because here is this kind of depressed kid who doesn't really know how to relate. He doesn't really like his family, and so he fakes these... Or his mom, so he's faking suicide all the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's, it's a weird thing, and it's like, this is who I'm supposed to identify with? It's kind of a strange thing to jump into. But, uh, and that's where I think, like... The people in normal society in 1971 probably did struggle with what was going on here. But I can see why there were younger people who saw this film at small theaters and kept coming back. I mean, there were people who just would see it over and over and over again. And those are the people that really bolstered this and kept it uh you know kept a presence of it out in the theaters that kind of allowed it to play for quite a while allowed people to discover it and it's it's one of those films that i think you almost have to discover you almost have to kind of stumble into and watch and and then it becomes something to you because there are messages in here there's there's characters in here that you can identify with even though they're Kind of strange and quirky, but I think anybody can probably identify because I, I guarantee everybody goes through feelings like these characters go through, even if it's not as extreme as their feelings.
0: I what I love about this uh, about the overall cast of characters, right? The composite—if you put them all together—they um, make kind of uh, one complex human. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think each of these characters is something that I have felt and exhibited it at some point or another in my life, maybe even throughout any given day, uh, The you know, to follow Maud's exuberance for life and, uh, you know, her, her just the thrill that she lives, uh, you know, every day every footfall is another opportunity to steal a car or save a plant or uh, you know go live in a train car like that is just such a a thrilling aspirational way to live and and Harold his struggle with darkness and uh, you know his relationship with his mother and his feeling of abandonment and uh, you know imposter syndrome and uh, that uh, you know who hasn't felt those sorts of things and uh, his uncle the uh, You know, the the military magnate, you know, trying to with his one arm, uh, you know, trying to figure (laughs) out how he can still salute with a pulley system and be a leader in the military. That's not a joke. And uh, just the way they treat all of these things uh, doing it with uh, with such a soft glove. I feel like that's the thing to attach to. And that's why it takes to my eye, maybe a couple of viewings of the film to figure out, like, who, who am I in this relationship, in this negotiation with this movie? I, I was deeply disheartened when I read uh, Roger Ebert's uh, review of this film: one and a half star review, saying that uh, Harold Maud doesn't even earn a, a a pallbearer position. It's a he it, it did not connect with the movie, and I felt like that's a did, did the guide go to his grave not understanding this movie? Because that that would be a real tragedy. But but I don't think he's alone, right? I think that is that is representative of the challenge of a movie like Harold Maud that that it 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 might be a movie that takes a little practice. That's entirely possible.
1: I mean, and it's also, I think it is one of those films because of the way that it it uh, wears its heart on its sleeve. I can see some people really just, uh, if they're not in the space to kind of uh, kind of take in what it's putting out there or kind of riding with kind of some of that quirkiness, I can see some people going, oh, geez, this is just kind of shoveling right into my face, isn't it? You know, because it, it can seem that way. And mm-hmm. I, I think that certainly is something that Hal Ashby kind of brings with uh, with his filmmaking style sometimes. Which I happen to really click with, and I. But I can see that some people probably are just like, "Oh, too much."
0: Some of the relationships, or, or I should say, some of the big issues that they're dealing with uh, in this movie. Uh, he's to to my eye, it doesn't feel like he bit off more than than he could chew in this movie. I mean, I feel it feels like he handles some really complex issues um, smartly. Um, oh. What is your take on how he deals with things like suicide? Uh, the movie opens with a, a rough one if you're not sure what you're going to get.
1: Right. It could seem like a very dark opening. I mean, you've got uh, Cat Stevens song uh, beautifully playing over this and you don't know what's happening. You just kind of see something going on as the fantastic camera work kind of follows the feet of this character that we learned to be Harold and we see kind of what he's up to. we see him kind of walking through his house and, and putting, uh, you know, writing something and putting a, uh, pinning a note to his shirt and then standing on a chair and yeah, then kicking out from under it. And you see him dangling there and it's like, wow. Okay. That's where we're starting. That's quite a bold way to kick off a film. Uh, what do we have? Like we've got, uh, he hangs himself. He cuts his wrist. he, Drowns, he shoots himself in the head, mm-hmm. he self immolation, he chops his arm off, which isn't really suicide, and then he does a hair carry uh, uh, maneuver where he uh, kind of guts himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are his suicides here. I feel like right out of the gate with the first one, which seems pretty dark. But then the mom walks in and has that great line, I suppose you'll think that's very funny, Harold. (laughs) Which I think, for me, tells me what kind of movie this is, you know? this I mean, suicide is a very dark thing. And we end this film with the suicide of one of these characters. And it is a very tragic ending. And Harold, who has been doing all of these suicides throughout the film uh, faces this reality at, at the end of it, and it it changes him. And I think, I think he's using it as a way to kind of communicate with his mother. I don't think he's making fun of suicide. I don't think the filmmakers are making fun of suicide. I think it's a very, uh, you know, it's a form of expression that is a very dark form, but our character is very dark. And I think because the film takes it on and he ends up facing it in the end of the film, I think it puts it in its place and allows us to see it in in the realities after having seen it in some fairly jovial ways throughout the course of the story.
0: I I think I agree with all of that. I would like to add the patience by which they let the suicides play out, in particular the first one, is what makes our introduction into the world of Harold and Maude such a challenge, because it's slow. It's slow and meticulous the way Harold puts everything together, and when he stands up on the chair, and when he you know takes that step off and you see the feet hang there, it doesn't look like a guy setting up a, a joke, and it is presented so... Uh, carefully Uh, the reverse perspective shot when mom walks in the room she has a very long uh, effort uh, to react and and I think that makes it confusing jarring to the viewer if you've never seen it before and absolutely disquieting uh, as you're as you're trying to make sense of of what is coming with these characters and uh, it's hard it's hard I, I think to watch and you feel a little guilty laughing right and i, I think that's yeah. the point right that's the that's the purpose is to to challenge you to laugh at at um, and at, at, at something to to find comfort in it in a new way the the other thing i think that that sneaks around behind you in this movie is uh, as we get to know our characters right we get to know um harold through these sort of just diabolical attempts to get attention for his mother as he said as you said um, with maud uh she is it seems to exist much more on the surface through most of the movie, right? I mean, we we get to see her and and how she hand, she handles age and how she handles just being kind of a a gibbet, you know, going through the world, and and uh, uh, then we get a, a sequence at the very very end where they're sitting down together and, and Harold turns her wrist over and sees that she has a um, um, what we can presume is a, a Nazi. Um, Prison camp tattoo, concentration camp tattoo on her wrist. And uh, that is another example of such incredible patients, storytelling patients, to give us that deep in the third act of this movie um, that is – it's just – preternatural skill of screenwriting to, to hold back that far because all at once you you get the opportunity to replay the entire movie in your head and everything changes. All of a sudden, I have an understanding of Maud that I didn't have when we started. I thought I knew what she was. It waited long enough for me to be completely convinced that I knew who she was and what she was all about. And now she's somebody different. And at the, the very next, sequence we we, you know they meet it's her birthday and uh and she tells him it's the end i took the tablets i'm 80 this was it this is all i wanted to do and uh the and the movie suddenly to me at least makes sense It, it was a beautiful little gift yeah i
1: yeah i absolutely agree with that it's amazing how her character is played throughout the film and uh, yes, the tattoo reveal is 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 very much a big one. But I think Ruth Gordon, just the way you see things on her face when she's talking and when she you can just you can see memories happening as she kind of tells stories or or says things. And I think that's another gift that this film has in in all of that is that there's this amazing life going on here and we don't need to hear all the stories she can say a very short thing yeah. but you can see like all those memories of a lifetime lived happening through her face and you realize that there's a lot that she's that she's feeling here and there's reason that she's uh, behaving the way she is and uh, saying the things that she's saying, all of it is there. And it's it's just, it's done so well. And I, I should have mentioned also, when we were talking about suicide, not only do we have that kind of the great you know, look at the different suicides and everything, but there's an, a beautiful conversation midway through when uh, they're at her house and she's talking to him about it. And and he says kind of this story about it and, you know, about the first time it happened when he accident- accidentally Blew himself up, so to speak, right. doing a science experiment at school and came home and and went to bed. And and uh, the police came over and, and uh, told his mom that uh, he had been blown up at school. And uh, he it was like his first time having that experience. And it almost like he, it became this addiction for him. And it just how it brings him to tears in that moment. It's just it's a beautiful moment. And that's why I think this film works so well, because it doesn't just do these things in a way that is just for laughs. It's always uh, at the emotional core of the story. And that's what makes it so strong.
0: And, and that's a really coming good point. from him or her. Yeah, that's a really good point, too. The fact that that the the payoff for him where we actually hear his origin story when he's telling us that story you mentioned is a big one because that that is also delayed to the to near the end of the movie. And that that payoff for us, I think, allows us to reexamine it allows us to re-examine a lot of the other um, uh, sort of existential suicide attempts that he that he stages uh, in a new light. It's very powerful.
1: The one thing that I I, uh, was hoping to see at the very end of the film, which I don't think we needed to see, but I would really have loved it, is for him to have ended up kind of reconnecting with that third date of his because of all the ones it's like she's the one for you yeah.
0: look she's totally into it you know <laughs> it was... there, there's something really great about that too if, if we can pause on that bit because um, I, you see this at least for me I saw them I saw them connect and I think the, the natural like storytelling uh, instinct kicks in at least it did for me where it says oh okay now we get the third act conflict where he has discovered that uh, there is someone his own age and the trope kicks in uh of course yeah. not only is she his own age and but she totally gets his uh overdramatic sense of of um you know presence and is right along with him killing herself and uh, in in act and doing the the romeo and julia bit and so you expect that the third act Challenge is going to be him going to Maud and sort of saying, "Well, I've I've figured out who I am," and then the real sorrow is going to be them breaking up, and it's it's going to be in right, right. It's going to turn into some some melodrama like that, and it doesn't do that. Instead, uh, it it moves even further toward this relationship, uh, you know, and and I think the film truly commits in that point to uh, love has no age and really lets you challenge uh, that cultural preconception in a new way
1: works really well Mm -mm 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 -mm. Hal ashby very much was kind of a a hippie very anti-government kind of of that kind of the pot smoking counterculture of the late 60s uh, early 70s Um, this film feels like that it it feels like it fits all of the things that Hal Ashby wanted to take off at the time, for sure. But I feel like this film does a good job of of still being timeless. And I, I think that's a really interesting thing about this film, that it it is very much of its time while still finding a way to kind of expand past that. And I, I is it just the messaging? You
0: know, maybe I guess that's so funny because I was thinking about that in the the uh, the war speeches when his uncle is describing for him, you know, what it's like to be in the military. And the first time we get it is he's talking, he's trying to sell it and pitch it and and try to convince uh, Harold that you know a life in the military is is where you want to be you know it's you're gonna be a man now you know all the particular tropes and and it is lampooned uh it, only because he does the the presentation of that speech is done through this one arm uh, one-armed man clearly he was or at least we we assume he was disabled in service but The pulley, man, the pulley, he's he has this pulley on one shoulder so that he can raise his sleeved arm up and salute. And that is such a middle finger to the service uh, that that feels totally like something you're you you would see in the period as a response to what is going on in the in uh, in the world. Right. In terms of the the American presence in uh, military theater Um, and Don't we see the same kind of lampooning today? The fact that we were able to make – that that Clooney was able to come back around and make the Hulu series for Catch-22, again, a middle finger to uh, modern military presence around the world and and sort of country dominance. Uh like this. uh, To your point, it is absolutely timeless. I felt like these messages, they haven't changed a breath.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree. I, I feel like there might be elements that are very, well, like I said, there's elements that are very much of the time. But the story itself, like, there's nothing in here that says this film is for audiences from 1971. And now we can look back and mm-hmm. see what they appreciated at the time. I think that this is definitely a film for all ages.
0: Can we, let's talk about Mom. Oh, Mother. She's, did she remind you of yours as uh <laughs> <laughs> she did mine you know no. you know
1: mod actually reminded me of my mom
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know what i so here's Very the story the first star, time i, I saw this movie uh when my parents realized they could rent it my mother went out and got it and and made me watch it and I didn't understand it the first time I watched it. I was a young teenager, and this had been one of her favorite movies, uh, and she just knew I had to watch it. I had no idea what I was getting at, it. and what I realize now is that she wanted me to see the woman that she wanted to be when she was 80, and uh, I, I, think that's a, I think that's pretty cool, you know?
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's, uh, th- I think that's kind of a gift of the film is, and I think to a certain extent, I think Maud ends up being aspirational for a lot yeah. of people. You know, because you see her and go, oh, I want to live that free and make decisions like that. Maybe not steal cars. Dude, wh- everywhere she does. I go. It was
0: so good. She steals every car, <laughs> and it's no problem for her. Like that oh, is I amazing. <laughs> she sure does she steals Uh, she's the first car she steals is a priest car that Uh was incredible
1: plus the priest drives a a, a, a vw bug the the they
0: they discover that there is a tree the the leaves are browning because it's planted in public space downtown on a sidewalk and she decides you know what we really need to to liberate this tree and save it but it takes them a long time to find a truck eventually they find an el dorado and they steal it and they go downtown and they steal the tree and then they're pulled over for driving through a, a, a traffic gate the a, a change gate what is it called <laughs> they're getting on an express extro- toll booth, booth. <laughs> toll booth yeah words and uh they uh and and so they get pulled over by a cop on a motorcycle and then they proceed to just do donuts around him until he drops the bike and can't catch him. So he catches them on the way back and they steal his motorcycle. They steal his motorcycle. And in the con, that sounds, as I say it, ridiculous. If you haven't seen the movie, it sounds insane. The gift of the script and of Hal Ashby and of these characters is that I completely buy it in the context of the movie. It is funny and I'm dying for it. Absolutely. Uh, so anyway, we were talking about Mother. Oh,
1: yes. Oh, boy. I love her. Uh, her reaction, her, Mrs. her character. Yeah. Yeah. Her, her character in this film is just brilliantly portrayed. Uh, she is just, uh, she's a hoot. I mean, Vivian Pickles plays plays her, uh, and she is kind of this British, very rich woman who is done with harold and his antics and the way that she reacts to everything is perfect and my favorite bit uh, she's i mean she's like my favorite i mean i love harold i love maud but every time mom is on screen i just i'm already smiling as soon as i see her my personal favorite bit is when she starts filling out the personality test for harold (laughs) and is doing it for him, but then totally takes it over and ends up doing it for herself. And I just cannot stop laughing out loud. Was it's was that so the funny. bit?
0: That was the bit that slays you enough? Because you oh. told me we when we first talked about this, you'd already watched it. I hadn't watched it yet. And you said, there's Absolutely. just one moment that makes me laugh out loud. I couldn't pick it because there were too many that I oh, was laughing it's, out loud. Yeah,
1: it's totally that one. When she's like, you know, she's checking things off and she's like, do you think that there's, um, gosh, I can't remember it right now, but there's too much. Uh, you know, the when the sexual revolution has gone too far, yes, it uh, yes has. I do. No, she's like yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's so funny, and yeah. that's exactly mom. That's why it's so perfect because she she is that character who. Is trying to do these things for Harold, but in a way that's satisfying for herself. Yes. <laughs> that's that's what that personality does. Seeing, you know, oh, it just slays me. I could just watch that <laughs> over and over again. She's oh, Vivian Pickles just she didn't act in a lot of movies. She was more of a theater actress and mostly British actress at that. But this role is just perfect. Just she's just great. I love everything that she does here. Yeah
0: she th- there's a later scene with her that i find really jarring it is when she tells him finally that she is going to to get him into the military like that's the next thing for him and the yeah. way they they block this sequence he's standing in the middle of this oriental rug and it's it's the classic kind of house with the wainscoting and she's standing in front of the fireplace and the lighting is such that it looks like a an interrogation and it's very strange this interrogation right that why does this house have equipped this kind of of otherworldly lighting it doesn't look like it should fit and um it it looks like he's being inducted into like the skull and bones club <laughs> you know like it it just doesn't <laughs> fit and I find that weird and funny and um uh just that that whole exchange her drive to get him to grow up um, stepping back a little bit the the first big one where you know something is just wrong beyond the Staged suicide attempts which she buys him that beautiful Jaguar, and he cuts it up with a a you know a settling torch and makes it a Jaguar hearse. <laughs> you know he's either your best friend or you're you're not going to get it. This movie is not for you. I I loved it. I loved it.
1: The one that they had and and you know for that last uh, scene with it they they filmed it with five cameras because they were going to drive it off a cliff. Yeah. And they're like, well, we got to make sure we catch it. So they shot it and uh, the the slow motion camera didn't work. Uh, one <laughs> of the other cameras, there was a camera in the car and they were hoping it would survive, but it got crushed. And so <laughs> they only had, they had, you know, three of the five cameras that ended up working. And so uh, Hal Ashby was a little disappointed with the, the footage options. And that's why there's that freeze frame on it as it goes off the yeah. cliff before it continues, because he that was that was the way that he had to do it.
0: Wow. Well, it it, worked. I don't know. It worked I, I for me. It. it worked for me. And it was a great setup. We should say like the end you, you like there is I don't know if I, there there's a little part of me that watches this movie and watches the end as that car. He's driving the car like crazy. He comes up over the cliff and the car goes off the cliff. And there is a part of me that says, OK, was this it? This was the first real Suicide because of his grief, um, and and of course, your heart knows. Of course not. Of course that's not the case. the The message of this movie is not that. You know, there is one relationship that is so grand that it's it's worth ending your life over. The message of the movie is how great it is, you know, that that you you finally are able to hear the signal of life and how glorious life is. And you have a model now uh, and that he was able to destroy the car and go traipsing off the, in the field playing the banjo for the first time alone um, is I, I find Absolutely uplifting and such a perfect punchline uh, to the setup that the rest of this movie has become that that we get the last bit of destruction and it's not the suicide. And it, it just works. It just works. Ugh! What a boring show this is. It's just us loving on this movie. All right, but it's a great symbol also
1: because you know that's what he chooses to drive is a hearse, and yeah. here he is, kind of almost like saying goodbye to the last vestiges of that life that he had been living. You know, he's like, I, it's, I'm not going to die, but it is, and he, mm-hmm. and it goes over the cliff and dies, and that's the end of that life, and now he's. You know, become the hippie dancing through the daisies, uh, playing the banjo in his bare feet. And it's perfect. And, you know, going back to what we used to do on our show, where we would look at the first shot and the last shot in a movie— this is a great example of why we used to do that because mm-hmm. there are these films that have such perfect examples of that. And here you start with this long, long take of this uh, elaborate steps to leading to the the suicide, the initial hanging, and then at the end you have uh, him dancing in the field. And I think it's a perfect example of the celebration of death and then the celebration of life. It's just it's just wonderfully done.
0: There's this collection of doctors that are funny, especially and there's the priest that I think is fantastic. Uh, that that they use as this tool to bounce cultural norms off of us as an audience. Like, we live in this world with Harold and Maude, and then they try to throw us this cultural reality in the voice of, of and I think the the uncle, the military uncle is one of them, but the priest. That's yeah, just the, the, the uncle, the priest, and, and the doctor. And the doctor, those three people, yeah, yeah, and the priest is the best one for me. When he has, I mean, he's practically drooling over his desk talking about uh, how, quote, disgusted he is about the thought of this young boy and this uh, this woman with her sagging breasts and flabby buttocks. And he is like salivating as the camera does this slow push, this tortured push into him. Uh, and I am, uh, I, it is, it's very moving, <laughs> these guys.
1: They're very funny in, in how utterly disgusted they are. Yeah. And it's just it's just fantastic as the the priest is like, I mean, he's like practically vomiting his words out. It's great. I just, I love all of their reactions and how they really build on each other. Well, he
0: is, but what I love so much about that is that like when he's talking about, he he ta- he refers to Harold as like uh, the thought of that taut body, you know, like he is a, he is a lustful guy. And that again is another sort of demonstration Demonstration of what, you know, these what Ashby and and Higgins are pushing against. Right. That this is we we all know what this sort of cultural reality is. We all know it. It's not a secret. So let's let's go ahead and poke at it. And it's it's bold. It
1: definitely is, and I think that's one of the smart things about the script and what they're doing here. Yeah. It's just great. I'm I'm amazed that this really is an idea that Colin Higgins came up with in his third year at UCLA in the uh, Masters program uh to to kind of pitch and and he came up with the the whole opening shot was basically the initial thing and then the script kind of spilled out from that i mean it's just amazing that uh you know so young and uh, it just like this whole thing just kind of uh, came out of him
0: i know it's uh, really annoying right form,
1: yeah. god it's yeah, right?
0: noxious.
1: <laughs> what do you think about breaking
0: the fourth wall
1: yeah it was an interesting moment that happens in the film here uh it's after the after harold um, you know, burns himself uh, to death, you know, the, the whole, you know, funeral pyre, basically, yeah. the self-immolation, and then walks in <laughs> as this girl, this poor date, <laughs> thinks that he's, uh, you know, setting himself on fire outside, only to have him appear behind her. It was a great moment. It played really well in the film. And I think... Uh, and then she freaks out and runs off and Harold, as he kind of watches her run off with a little smile on his face, just looks into the camera, this fourth wall, like acknowledging before his mom says something. And he kind of looks, looks away and it's, it's just great. And I guess it's just, it was Bud Court. He just kind of, uh, he just did it. And it played really nicely. It wasn't planned or anything. And Hal Ashby loved it and said, let's just keep it in there. And so I love that there's a little fourth wall moment like this that gets broken that wasn't planned, but it feels so natural for the film.
0: It, it really does it's very strange it, and it it works i think better than uh, many of the fourth wall breaks that i've seen i feel like he is looking at me and uh looking at me in a way it happens so slowly like his eyes just sort of drift on to me uh that i almost have to look behind myself right you get that sort of that that sort of disconnected sense that there's that he's looking at something he didn't. Of course he's not looking at me. Are you looking at me? Uh I it's it's a very effective um uh, little trick. Yeah, it works really nicely. All right. So he started this whole thing at UCLA. Uh how do you end up getting a maid?
1: Yeah, it was really interesting. So and, and this speaks to I guess why uh, it helps to live in L.A. when you're trying to get these sorts of things going. He was at UCLA and he was living. Uh, he had, a, a, you know, he saw an ad and uh, for a free place to live, um, but you had to kind of be part-time chauffeur and pool boy. And so he took it on. So he had a place to live all through his UCLA days. It happened to be in the house of Edward and Mildred Lewis. Uh, Edward Lewis was a big Hollywood producer who produced things like – I'm trying to remember. Spartacus was one of the big ones that he did. And um, uh, he all the way up uh, Seconds, uh, a film we've talked about on the show, he was one of the producers on Seconds. Uh, Later in his career, uh, Missing, uh, a really interesting Jack Lemmon film with Sissy Spacek, and then also The Thorn Birds. Uh, I mean, you know, he's definitely one of those producers who had been around the block doing some pretty big things. And even at this time, he was producing stuff. Uh, So, uh, while Colin was living uh, at this place, he got to know these two, and he was talking to Mildred about about this project that he was working on, and she said he'd re- she'd read it, and he gave it to her to read, and she loved it, gave it to her husband to read. He loved it, and Edward took it over to Paramount and had Bob Evans read it, and Bob e- Evans loved it and uh edward uh said let's make a deal over the weekend they did and next thing you know colin higgins had a deal with his uh his script that he had put together uh for his thesis project at ucla and so um and then through all of that mildred became an executive producer on the project because of the fact that she brought it uh (laughs) to to the studio meanwhile colin higgins wanted to direct it because who doesn't want to direct uh their their big projects and uh they they gave him some money to do it but didn't end up working out they didn't think he was quite up to the task and so they brought hal ashby on and he was a little reticent when he heard that colin higgins was supposed to direct it and He was just like why don't you just let him direct it and they're like look he's not directing it if you say no It won't be him. It's going to be somebody else. And so Hal came on, but he said, I'll I'll direct it, but bring him on as a producer and, you know, I'll kind of show him the ropes and stuff. And so Colin, not only did he get his script produced, he got to come on board as a producer, be on set all the time and work with Hal Ashby to kind of bring his vision to life. (laughs) What a way to go. So not uh, bad not too shabby. Hal Ashby was one of those filmmakers who, you know, he came up that way where, you know, and I think we talked about this on, I can't remember which film, but he was, uh, he kind of was in the editing side of things um, and uh, with Norman Jewison, I believe. And uh, he kind of came up under the ranks with him and with him as a mentor. And that, helped him learn how to kind of step up and become a director and so he was he always would try to do that with people that uh that he clicked with and, and colin higgins was certainly one of them
0: you know what i you know what i read uh speaking of working as a pool boy did you see who uh who was working for hal ashby at the time this was going on building a deck though no, who harrison ford <laughs> <laughs> isn't that funny that is awesome everybody gotta start somewhere andy Indeed. indeed. Uh, let's see. We, we haven't. Have we talked enough about Hal Ashby, the director of this thing? Hal
1: Ashby. Uh, We've talked about him on the show before. Mm-hmm. We've only talked about being there.
0: Which was exceptional. And I think an interesting pairing because it has being there has the same sort of patient humor that this one does.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Hal Ashby's uh, uh, filmmaking, this, this wasn't his first film, but uh, this was definitely kind of the first bigger one. He did The Landlord just beforehand, which, uh, you know, I think got enough notice for him to get a second film. And from that, he was able to kind of, you know, make this career because the films that he made really were the ones that spoke to him. And you look at like the the, the middle swath of his films from Heldamod, The Last Detail, Shampoo, Bound for Glory, Coming Home, Being There. Like that that little chunk of films, mm-hmm. I think really were what Hal Ashby was trying to say with film. And he did one before and a few after. But those films really speak to kind of everything that like was his message. And I think that's, uh, it's great to have a filmmaker who has such a core set of films that define him so well.
0: I never saw 8 million ways to die. It was very far outside of that, uh, period that you're talking about, but it was, um, uh, Lawrence Block wrote the book. Uh, the uh, but it was an Oliver Stone written screenplay directed by Hal Ashby, starring Jeff Bridges, Rosanna Arquette. Uh, I never saw it, but I, every time I see it, uh, and, and I remember having this feeling, uh, this feeling when we did the the last one. What is he doing with this movie? like that that's what the end of his career sort of felt like to me. like that what is what are we doing here? How did we go? Yeah, I watched
1: the Slugger's Wife, and that film was just uh, it was atrocious, which is frustrating because yeah. Neil Simon wrote it. Hal Ashby directed it, but it is just an embarrassing film to have made and just terrible, terrible, terrible. And it's frustrating. I, and I think that after being there, I just don't think that he really had a chance to to get the projects that uh, he needed or he was looking for you know i think he was just kind of taking whatever came and it's it's frustrating cuz yeah. uh, i i think that uh, you know for a person who is dealing with uh, kind of the stories and the issues that he was dealing with i think it was, uh, it was kind of difficult for him to kind of get things going which is too bad yeah. And I think it was, a lot of it I think also was I, I can't remember if it, if he was uh I don't remember if he had drug problems or alcoholism um uh, but I think there was definitely something with
0: that. Well, his dad his dad killed himself when he was 12. Um uh, Yeah, he, that was always something. That's I, that has an impact, you know, uh and um yeah. he's you know, he says he's he ended up having uh 50 or 60 jobs up to the time that he was working um and in at republic studios um he was just he bounced around a lot and i think it you can see uh his uh, i feel like you can see that touch in this movie right you can see this guy um you know who's who's trying to tell the story about suicide and grief and age in a way that and you know the parents not being present like you can you can see him try to approach this and it, it starts to feel much more deeply personal
1: yeah definitely yeah and just to clarify he did he did have a big dependence on drugs yeah, and uh, that was a a real issue for him so yeah very very tragic but you know i'm just thrilled that we do have these films that he made the the core hal ashby films i think are just uh, stand out as some of the the great ones yeah definitely a filmmaker of the 70s
0: yeah Let's uh, start. Let's do a rundown of the cast. Our favorite cast: Uh, Ruth Gordon uh, as uh, uh, Maud. What a uh,
1: what a great career she had. And she, you know, she started out, I believe, not even acting, but uh, writing. Like she had actually, I think she and her husband had written some of the, the classics that Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy did together, which I didn't even realize. Ruth Gordon and Gar- Garson Kanan uh, were the writers on like uh, Pat and Mike and Adam's Rib. And, you know, it just, I didn't even realize that about her. Mm-hmm. Because I always think of her as an actress, but lo and behold, there she is. She's doing stuff like this uh, before she even gets into the acting. So, but Rosemary's Baby, that's the one that I think really she probably got a lot of notice for because uh, it was a great role and she won an Oscar for
0: it. Yeah. Bud Court was a young man, and I think he presents younger in the uh in in the film then i expect for everything his mother is trying to do for him right he looks like his age like 18 which and and it, it, she is trying to push him in directions uh the, that that uh, uh seem older than that
1: yeah uh, yeah i was a little like uh, okay but it seemed like maybe just the rich people life yeah i think she doesn't
0: you know she wants rid of him like she's she doesn't she has other plans she has dinner parties to plan she has all kinds of things to do and she 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 wants him uh, you know out in the world go do your thing and that's that's kind of the sense i get and um so here is this kid and i think bud court does an an admirable job of portraying this this kid uh, who, you know, is being pushed in these directions and is running headlong into his own emotional instability as a result. He he does such a
1: great job in the role. And, uh, you know, he had been acting a few years before, but not a lot of stuff. But, uh, you know... Uh, Hal Ashby, when he was auditioning, trying to find him, he, he was the one that he gravitated to right away, even though they kind of still were auditioning people. He always came back to Bud Court. And uh, And Colin Higgins said that, you know, he had initially written this with a friend actor of his in mind, um, who obviously didn't get cast. But he said what what Bud brought to it, he said Bud Bud didn't always play things the way that he saw it being played but in the end he realized that bud was actually living it and bud created a performance that became harold and that i think is what makes it so strong
0: yeah it it was uh, apparently a struggle according to bud he said uh, his relationship uh, with ruth gordon was pretty standoffish uh, until his dad died And uh, apparently his dad died waiting for him to to show up on some show. And um, uh, and he says uh, uh, that the night that they found out his dad died, the very first call he got was from Ruth. And she and and he said from then on, their relationship off screen mirrored their relationship on screen in many ways. Uh, that that they became very very close uh, as a result of their connection over the death of his father uh, as they were filming this movie uh and and you know again contextually speaking that that shows that plays
1: and he's still keeping busy you know he's yeah still popping up and stuff has it's, he's really slowed down in the last uh ten years or so, but man he was uh you know he had a pretty good run for a long time.
0: We've already talked about Vivian Pickles as Mrs. Chasen, the mom. And uh, we've, we've made mention of uh, General Victor Ball, Harold's uncle, played by Charles Tyner. Um, and uh, let's see that. I think the big, the big one for me is Tom Scarrett as the motorcycle officer who gets turned around and drops a bike. Tom Scarrett can't yeah even what a funny tell.
1: surprise he uh he wasn't even cast in this film uh, it was a different guy playing the cop who uh who <laughs> he apparently took off on the motorbike while the kickstand was still down and hurt himself and couldn't do it anymore and so Tom Skerritt, who happened to be a buddy of Hal Ashby's and happened to be staying with him at the time um he did it as a favor and and because of all the SAG rules and everything uh, he just listed himself as—they they came up with the funny name M. Borman as the name that he would go under when he played this role. And the whole joke there is Martin Borman, who had been one of Hitler's men who apparently escaped after World War II and went into hiding, they thought it would be really funny. It's like, what if he came to the United States and and hid by being an actor? <laughs> so God. that was their little joke, crediting him as that.
0: That's grim. <laughs> but well, Skerritt does great.
1: Yeah, he's great in the role. Although I questioned at the end of the the scene with him that he actually pulls his gun and, <laughs> on them as they're driving away his know. bike and shoots at them. Uh, yeah. Luckily, has no bullets loaded. But I was just like, "Wow, okay." If that's not a statement of of the authority figures yeah. by Hal Ashby right. in the film, I'm not sure what <laughs> is.
0: Yeah. Uh good bit. A camera John Alonzo, um and uh, the camera and editing by William Sawyer and Edward Washchilka. Uh, it has a lovely tone.
1: Yeah, I think it looks great. Uh John Alonzo is uh, definitely a filmmaker who's been around and uh has done just a lot of great stuff and um or I should say did a lot of great yeah. stuff while he was around and uh, I I, I don't remember if we mentioned him much when we were talking about Star Trek Generations, but he did work on that one. So,
0: Ah, Star Trek Generations. That was a real high point in that series. Am I <laughs> was, right? Am yeah, poor I guy. Right? Poor
1: guy. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, great stuff from him and great stuff. You know, the editing and also Hal Ashby was an editor and did some uncredited editing on this with these guys but I mean the editing is just really sharp and you look at the way that scenes are cut or sometimes intercut together it just it helps the story flow and this was a film that when they initially cut it together it was three hours it was double its length mm-hmm. um, and they said that when they edited it down they really didn't lose any scenes what they really did is just cut each scene down almost by half and it really kind of helped shape the film in a way that actually made it move because they said beforehand it was almost internal because they're like, oh, Ma just kind of has these long stories and it just went on forever. And so now it just it goes by beautifully. And it's just it's a, just a perfect little film the way it's got
0: together. God, did we not even talk about him for The Magnificent Seven, John Alonzo?
1: Yeah, I, we might have. We might have brought him up. I, I can't remember. We better. It was a while have, ago. Man, we should have been punished.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay, music, Cat Stevens. So we've got a couple of original songs here.
1: Yeah, a couple of original songs and a bunch of uh, other songs from several of his albums that they had heard at the time and Hal Ashby would just kind of edit songs and he would tell his editors just if you know if there's any blank spots just throw any song in and you know we'll just play and And he found a bunch of songs that fit really well in the film and it's, it's just beautiful like Cat Stevens' music is great anyway and then to have it kind of As the kind of the backbone of this film, going from, you know, starting with Don't Be Shy right at the beginning, all the way through, if you want to sing out, sing out at the end, which are the two original songs, and then just all the other songs throughout. It just, it works really well, and it feels very much a part of this world. I mean, definitely it feels of its era, but at the same time, it's just, it's just the music I I don't know. I always found Cat Stevens songs to have such uh, kind of honest emotions with things and the way that they kind of portray things, which fits very well with everything that Maude is talking about. Also, by the end of the movie,
0: you're super high. (laughs) And there is that. I mean, this movie is just a singing suicide contact high. That's all it is. It's amazing. Uh, uh what do we have in funny. terms of uh sequels and remakes did they did they come about this story again and again and again
1: well colin higgins uh it was definitely one that clicked with certain people in certain places the french loved it It uh, played for a while <laughs> in France. the french
0: loved it that's yeah, on
1: brand That's, <laughs> that's yeah, right? your go france <laughs> uh higgins they actually uh, a frenchman named jean-louis barreau he hired Higgins to adapt it for a French actress named Madeleine Renaud who um, who played Maude in it. And this it ran for seven years in France. It was very popular. He adapted it over here into English and it played on Broadway. It only ran for four performances. So I think wow. that speaks to how it played in different places. Uh, but Higgins was really interested in the story and continuing it. He wanted to do a sequel and a prequel. Uh, the sequel was going to be Harold's Story is what it would have been called. And it would have been how Harold kind of changed and grew after having modded his life. The prequel would be about Maud's life before Harold, and it was going to be called Grover and Maud, all about her learning how to steal cars from Grover Muldoon, who is a character we will be talking about soon in the next film, uh, Silver Streak, played by Richard Pryor. And he wanted Gordon and Pryor to be in that particular film. So uh, none of that ended up happening, probably because the movie made no
0: money. I think that it would have been better if the first the prequel is about her as like the night nurse in the uh, neonatal intensive care ward the day that Harold is born. And so it becomes this incredibly creepy story <laughs> of this woman following this guy oh, through man. his life. That's, That's weird. Now that the French. So when, Andy, at,
1: so when she's at the cemetery, she's not there for the funeral. No. She's there because she's stalking she's Harold. She's
0: stalking Harold. Talk about a twist. <laughs> Right? And the French <laughs> yeah, right? would have loved that movie. Yeah, that would uh, be right <laughs> up there, Alec. Too funny. How to do an award season.
1: Uh, you know, it. Uh, this is, again, we've mentioned it. This is a film that took a while to find its its uh, fans. It only had two wins and three other nominations. At the Golden Globes, uh, Ruth Gordon and Bud Court were both nominated for acting in musical or comedy. Ruth Gordon lost to Twiggy in The Boyfriend. And Bud Court lost to Topol in Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, the BAFTA's Bud Court was nominated for most promising newcomer to leading film roles, but he lost to Joel Gray in Cabaret. A lot of good it did him with his film career. Um, and one of the wins that it had was a, a film fest I've never heard of the Vala, uh, Valladolid International Film Festival, where Hal, Hal Ashby did win the Golden Spike Award. So uh, <laughs> I want to learn more <laughs> about this the, film festival. The golden more people spike? need Golden Spikes.
0: Wow. <laughs> What is that? What does that even mean, Valladolid? It's a city in Spain and the de facto capital of the autonomous community of Castile and León has a population of 309,000.
1: Oh, it was probably via, Valladolid.
0: Valladolid. Valladolid. Yeah. Go, go. go to the Dolid. What, what is a Dolid? <laughs> anyway, how to do it. Anyway. You, you, you say it didn't make any money. Hal
1: Ashby's film, based on Colin Higgins' script, cost cool $1.2 or $1.3 million to make, depending on who you believe. That's about $7.5 to $8.2 million in today's dollars. The movie opened limited December 22nd, 1971, and unfortunately, as I've said, just could not find its audience, despite the few notes in award circles. That being said... It eventually found its fans, and those fans were fervid watching it over and over. In fact, 12 years after the film opened in 1983, Higgins was interviewed, and he said he finally received his first royalties check for the film. So it took a good 12 years to make uh, a profit.
0: <laughs> the Unfortunately. The whole
1: right yeah unfortunately i could not find any statistics about the profits but considering it still continues its cult hit status we could just assume that it has continued earning its money since then
0: well i watched it on amazon so it probably didn't earn that much way to help him out. i'm gonna you know what i'm just gonna go press play before made. i go to bed a couple of times not, i'll just repeat go, i'm just gonna watch it again and again play it over and yeah, over again for every 12 hours Yep. Uh, I, it, you, do you have the Blu-ray of this one? Is it, is it good? The I do. I have
1: the Criterion Blu-ray. It's uh, gorgeous, and it's got some great supplemental features. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's one I treasure. It's one that I will always hold on to in uh, one form or another because it's such a great film.
0: Is it one that you sleep with? Like under your pillow or something.
1: Under my pillow. You yeah. talk
0: awfully lovingly about it.
1: It's it's like a pea, you know, I'm the princess of the pea. It's like me. <laughs> but if but if it's not there, then I can't sleep. Why, what's going on? Where's Harold oh, and Maude? It's missing. It's missing. There it is. Okay. I can
0: sleep Well, I love it. And what a perfect movie to open the series on Colin Higgins and his works, and I'm very excited to see where we go from here. Yeah, I
1: am uh, I'm looking forward to it too, because I love this film, and I don't think I've seen any of the other ones so no i take it back i've seen nine to five so i've seen nine to five but i haven't seen silver streak or foul play or the best little whorehouse in texas so there's a lot of new stuff in this series for me and i'm quite excited andy Uh, that's why we do these things (laughs) so i can finally take them off my list
0: (laughs) okay okay all right well let's take it to the mat shall we Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this movie. But the beauty of flickchart is if you swipe over in your show notes and you tap the movie, the word flickchart in our show notes for this movie, it'll take you to this movie in flickchart's database where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours.
1: All right. We're going to add Harold and Maude to our chart and see how high or how low it goes, are you stalling
0: right now? Are you
1: stalling? Was uh, that what uh, you mean? I mean you, you never know, <laughs> Harold and Maud <laughs> or one of the uh the best picture uh, nominees from a few years before the Lion in winter uh Harold Maud. Harold and Maud for me as well, Harold and Maud or dead ringers, Harold and Maud from a David Cronenberg series, Harold and Maud for me as well, Harold and Maud or Rocky
0: oh uh. I'm going to say Harold and
1: Maude. I'm saying Harold and Maude. Okay. Okay. Harold and Maude or Black Hawk Down. Ooh. It's definitely Harold and Maude for me. Okay. I like Black Hawk it's Down. It's Harold and but Maude, I, but I, it's well, not, I mean, maybe not, it, but definitely. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Harold and Maude takes it. Harold and Maude or Casablanca. Casablanca. Yeah. Casablanca. Harold and Maude or Inception.
0: Do you know, okay, Andy... <laughs> I really love Inception. I do too. You're going to say Harold and Maude, aren't you? I'm going to say Inception. You are? Oh, God, that gives me cover because I didn't want this to be another 2001 thing. Oh, thank God. All right, everybody call Andy first, but I'm Inception, but behind Andy, I'm immediately behind (laughs) Andy.
1: You're pushing me forward. I love Inception. You crossed the
0: line first. (laughs) Andy also loves Inception more. Go ahead. (laughs) Harold Amad or Star Trek
1: 2009? Uh, Star Trek 2009. I will say Star Trek 2009. Harold Amad or All the President's Men? All the President's Men. All the President's Men, please. Harold Amad or Children of Men? Children of Men, please. Wow. Children of Men. I said that
0: so fast. Did you hear how fast I said
1: that? I know. (gasps) You really changed on that one. Well, that puts Harold and Mod. Uh, that this is a great way to start off a new series. Harold and Mod spot twenty-seven out of four hundred thirty-two on our chart. Ugh, that is a great kickoff. That's a ninety-four percent, and uh, yeah, that's really. Really great! I love that uh, we're starting so high.
0: Yeah, me too. Uh, what a terrific thing to do! Now that we've done this, though, where you've, did this end on your letterbox oh, chart, oh, or on your personal You're right. Chart? I gotta tell you, I gotta share the big news. Uh, I had to re rank it because it had been a long, long time, and it ended up it broke the top 100. It ended up at 94 on my flick chart, which, um, which feels it feels pretty good, knowing that there's a lot of shakeup that I need to do in my top 100. That feels pretty good. How'd it do on yours?
1: Well, that's a great spot for you. Mine ended up at 237 out of 4,255, which is exactly 94%, just like it ended up on our chart. So yeah. uh, it's uh, you know, it's it's up there for me. This is a great one.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a 93% for me. So it's it if I go by the algorithm on flickchart.com, it should be nine, it should be a four and a half star over a letterbox. That's just that's of course, that's ridiculous. It's a five star movie with a heart for me. I adore it. I can't wait to watch it. I watched it with my daughter. She was home with an injury today, and uh, she loved it. And that just did my heart such good to see that this movie still trucks with a 17-year-old. Fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's absolutely a five star film in a heart for me. Also, it's just one that I've always loved since I first discovered it. And I do think it's one of those films that you you find a place in your heart for it. And it just uh, it just is always there and it always uh, fills it. It's just a wonderful one. So,
0: well, you already uh, you sort are. of let the cat out of the bag. Where do we go from here? Here, you're here, here. here.
1: Yeah, we are going to be looking at uh, his next film, uh Colin Higgins' next film that he wrote uh before he started directing. It is Silver Streak directed by Arthur Hiller, who we just talked about recently on our last series with Steve Martin.
0: The most hilarious suspense ride of your life, Andy. Silver Streak. I'm
1: looking forward to it. Uh you know, I've I've seen a few Gene uh Gene Wilder Richard Pryor films and uh but I've not seen this one, so I think it's high time Ugh,
0: i love this one ned Beatty, jill Clayburgh, come on
1: yeah it's got a great cast and it sounds like a fun one you know he's trying to uh, pull a little hitchcock so that that's that, right uh, always bodes well
0: we got one more thing andy i i think you you may recall last week we talked about the fact that we have an announcement to make this week
1: yes yes we do you're pushing me into this uh but i'm ready
0: of uh, all of, of you, the things it, that i have pushed you into this is the one that feels like you're most depressed about. Like, you just don't even want to engage in it. And no, And no, no. the fact that the community <laughs> keeps coming back and is like, when are you going to announce you're guilty? Like, people clear. And you are Eeyore in this decision. So I want you to know, my friend, <laughs> I feel for you. We're going to do it anyway, but I love you and I feel for you. And even sometimes in the life, you have to do things that hurt. So... It's, Here we I go know, it's
1: hard the the hard part for me with guilty pleasures is I don't feel like I, nothing that I have makes me feel guilty so see <laughs> they're all pleasures <laughs> it's great that's that's how you should how everyone should live i I am mod to your Harold. Yes. let's show you the way no um, honestly though it's uh, I feel like I have some others that are potentially okay let me step back here's my concern. I I am concerned that all of my guilty pleasures are going to turn into my Tom Hanks favorite films from the eighties, and I don't want it to turn into that because it's very easily <laughs> good. I could throw them on here and be totally content with what are we're, you telling, we're doing. Did you
0: just but out yourself a little bit? Are you? No, I, know, doing I didn't. I okay. didn't because right. I'm like
1: I can't do that. We did volunteers. Yeah, I would love to throw uh, Money Pit in. I would love to throw Mel's Wonder Two. Uh, even uh, nothing in common. There's a lot, but I didn't do that. And I, I, that was what I was concerned about. I'm like, I don't know what to do. Cause I don't know what else is a guilty pleasure. And it was work. I had to go through and really scour my, uh, my flick charts to find, okay, what do I have that are favorites of mine? And then I had to look them up on IMDb and go, okay, is this a low enough star? Yes. And I finally found one that I'm content with. And I feel good. And I even have some potentials for a future as well. Excellent. I feel like I'm in a good place right now.
0: I feel like you have just given us a perfect preamble for the big announcement. Why don't you go first? (laughs) Okay.
1: This is uh, a film that is a 2018 film, if you can (gasps) believe it. You're
0: already guilty about it. Great. That's great. Very
1: recent. Uh, well, I'm guilty because apparently so many people don't like it. Over okay. on IMDb, it has a 5.6 uh, okay. stars out of 10, which is below your six-star yep. yep. uh, cutoff. And that something out. that generally people say is pretty crappy. I love it. Um, as you know, Pete, I recently did a watch of all of Melissa McCarthy's films. I went through her entire (laughs) filmography and watched them all. And I had a great time. Uh, She's been in a lot of films that I would say are not that great, but I love her anyway because I think she's hilarious. Well, this film, Life of the Party, let me tell you, Pete, directed by her husband, Ben Falcone, I was just in stitches through this film. I had so much fun with it. And so that's what we're going to watch together. Life of the Party. That's my pick.
0: I'm so excited about that. That's fantastic pick. It is. It's a fantastic pick. I have never seen it. Yay! So I get to just be excited about it, and I don't have to give you <laughs> any trouble leading up to it because it is new to me, Life of the Party. And so that's great. And so at the end of Colin Higgins, uh, we'll be doing Life of the Party. The film that I have chosen is one that I am sure you know what I'm going to pick. I'm sure. I'm sure I do. <laughs> you know what I'm going to pick. This has been, a for me, an incredibly long time coming. It is a movie that defined much of my life. Uh, uh, my High school senior year, it became the universal friend test. If if you were cool enough to show up on the uh, in the front yard of somebody's house and sing "Swinging on a Star" with tiki torches to see if they would kick you out or call the police or come hang out with you, uh, then you pass the test. And uh, it all stems from this movie and a small group of us who just adored it when it came out. It still holds up for me. It is made all that much more resonant uh, that I announced my pick so soon after the passing of one of its stars, Danny Aiello. I am talking about, of course, 1991's Hudson Hawk. A cat burglar forced to steal the Da Vinci works of art for world domination plot. Incredible character performances uh, from some just wonderful actors. It is weird. It is hard to get your head around. But I really connect with this movie. Bruce Willis, Danny Aiello. James Coburn, come on. Of course, Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernard.
1: If there's one thing I remember with that film, well, and there's more than one thing I'll just tell you, uh, it's Richard E. Grant, who is yeah. hilarious in the film.
0: Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, it is incredibly quotable, this movie. It's very quotable. And so I can't wait to be to have it be quotable with you.
1: So that's it. I've seen it once with you in college. And... <laughs> My memories of it are pretty good. I I can't remember a whole lot, but I remember things about it. Yeah. I remember going, it's odd that these guys are singing all the time while they're stealing things, but I still (laughs) kind of enjoyed it. I think it's a really quirky, weird film. And, you know, Michael Lehman, who directed it, has done some interesting projects, particularly Heather's, which was right out of the gate. I mean, he was, uh, you know. Uh, Starting strong. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to revisiting this one with you.
0: And it is one of the rare movies. I'll just say this out loud, but so people can start, you know, talking about me, uh, giving me trouble now. It is one of those rare movies for which a voiceover does not give me trouble. There you go. Hey, look mm-hmm. at that. All right. That's it. Okay. That's well, there it. it is. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon right, giveth, so Andy. Do. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, Amazon, you're adorable. You're adorable. <laughs> your little cheeks. Oh, p- yes. Oh, spank your bottom. Uh, I, went with, uh, I, I went with one star. I assume you did the same. I did. Yeah, there are a lot of people who are very upset about some weirdly recut version of this movie. Uh, my research didn't uh, uncover that. Did you? No, I don't think they know what they're talking about. Mm.
1: I think they need to do some research because everything I've read, there is no other cut it's, of this film. It's just the cut. This is it. Well, it is.
0: Uh, I uh, would you like to open the open the bidding?
1: I will. Uh, yes, I do. I have a one star by Haley Sue, who says weird, not in a good way. Oh, on what planet? I- <laughs> Hideously awful. <laughs>
0: that's it that was was Haley Sue (laughs)
1: Haley Sue yes
0: well uh uh, Werner shows up with a a one star under the name happy happy joy joy who says underaged child has sex with a wrinkled cougar whatever floats your boat but it sank mine (laughs) does it make you wonder what floats Werner's boat (laughs) Ah, oh, <laughs> depressed VR penguins. <laughs> That's going to be it, uh, yes. Carrying boats over uh, hills in Brazil. Oh, there you go, Werner. <laughs> Happy joy. Thanks Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM.